millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to the podcast. I'm Peter Hart. I'm with, with, who are you? Who are you in? What are you doing in my bedroom? I'm Gary Bain, and this is your lounge. Although, with the pillars of doom, this is often your bedroom. Yes, well, now come back a little worse to wear. Pillows of doom outside the bedroom door. Inside, outside the front door now, I think. <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, what do we do today, Gary? What are we doing? Well, today we're continuing our uh, story or their story, in fact, of the second Fife and Forfa Yeomanry. We've and entirely given up pronouncing Forfa. We have, yeah. Bugger uh, yes, you're right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that we're sort of doing a bit of a roundup of, of everything about what it was like. And, and imaginatively, you've called this what it's like. Yeah. What's what like? Yeah, what's, what's it about, I should have put. Yeah. What's it about? Well, um, the thing is that not every story the men tell or every experience or every, sometimes they're, they're general. They don't know when it was. And that means it was difficult to fit into the, 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 uh, the outline of a book, I suppose, or of a podcast. Because you can't say something's at Goodwood if the bloke doesn't know whether it's at Goodwood or at Epsom. And also you're recording these events sometimes as much as 60 years afterwards, aren't you? Yeah, you can't tie every story down. And yeah, the, the, so I think with, perhaps you might appreciate it. They were busy at the time and didn't always have time to write down the exact date or whatever. Uh, things press upon them like... Um, like pressy things. Yeah, like pressy things. It's just events press thick and fast. It's just... It, it, yeah. So there we go. So this is just... Uh, this podcast is what's it like, and and it's what it's like to be in a Sherman tank regiment in Normandy in uh, in June, July, August, nineteen forty four. So, uh, what do you think dominates their thoughts, Gary? Well, I think it's the nature and capabilities of the Sherman tank. Yeah, it had its merits. It was fast. It had a better gun than the previous British tanks. They'd been equipped within the UK, but it was simply not capable of standing up to the offensive weapons directed against it, with the unfortunate consequences which we've charted during operations Epsom, Goodwood and Bluecoat. And this is one of our good friends, Major Sir John Gilmore of B Squadron. Aye, he says. One of the things that became apparent was that the tanks were under-armoured. 
The design of the Sherman was a, a very straight-sided tank, so therefore there was very little chance of getting a ricochet of a sloping surface. It was much, it, it was very, it was very much vertical. It, that the sh the shot would penetrate it. They they put extra armor welded onto the outside of the Sherman in order to protect where the ammunition was stored. This turned out to be a mixed blessing because the Germans got to know of it. They found that to fire at this particular place was the best place to brew a Sherman tank up. Sorry about my problems. Do you want to borrow my teeth? Yes, I'm having a lot of trouble there. Now, the problem was that if a shell did penetrate the Sherman, then it would brew up, hence the reputation as Tommy Cookers. Uh, the shells were in bins and often on the floor all around the turret, which was an obvious risk, while the petrol engines were highly vulnerable. And this is what 2nd Lieutenant Charlie Workman of 1 Troop C Squadron says about the shells. Yes, slightly sarcastic at the start there. The shells are inside the tank. They had to be because the gun was inside the tank. They were always, they always aimed at the side of the tank. The front of the tank, the Sherman this is, was more heavily armoured and we used to put track plates along the front. The shells normally came in at the side and because the ammunition wasn't in a bomb-proof bin, they blew up. There was no lid on it. You had to have quick access to the shells. At the end of the day, these were petrol engines, not diesel. Once you hit petrol with a flash, burning was a problem, Gary. Yes, yes. It didn't, it didn't occur to me that there'd be petrol engines, Pete, I have to say. Now, after a few weeks in action, the men could work out their chances in action with the various different German tanks that they encountered. Although, of course, it was always a tiger. And uh, <laughs> this is what Trooper John Buchanan of 4 Troop A Squadron says. The Mark IV was a tank comparable to the Sherman. If we met them, we were okay. A good gun, their gun was slightly better than us, but we could give a good account of ourselves if we could get close enough. We could penetrate it. That was a fair fight. The Panther, you just don't argue with it. You try and hit on the side or the rear. The, the Germans always put their armour on the front. If shoved a few shells at it, two or three tanks aimed, it will disappear or blow up or you'll damage the tracks. The Firefly 17-pounder, that could take a panther out. That could penetrate. The Tiger, you could do nothing really. You got the artillery on it, the big six-inch six inch guns onto it, a stonk down on it. The weak point was its tail. You could knock its engine out by getting behind it and shoving a shell up the rear or break its track but you couldn't get close enough. It had a big 88mm gun that could fire five miles away, hit you and knock you out. They were usually holed down in their position, used as an anti-tank gun. You'd get out of the way and think of ways and means of getting it out. The best way was to get the air force on it. These typhoons were great boys. We put a red smoke shell over its head to mark the position so the aircraft would look at that red smoke and say, Right! Right! Well, there's no doubt that tiger mania becomes rife. We've, we've discussed this at length in the various podcasts. So obviously the, the, the tank crews, everything's a bloody tiger. Um, now early on, uh, Montgomery had weighed in and, and, and tried to prevent any sort of sense of defeatism creeping in. And he, he stood up for the quality of his tanks. Uh, he, he had to because if he didn't, I think it might affect morale, mightn't it? When the, um, but, uh, Despite occasional British uh, despair, if you like, 
the most numerous German tanks in uh, Normandy, what would you say it was, Gary? You're an expert on statistics and uh, analysis of German fighting strength. Yes. It was the Mark IVs. Yeah, probably, yeah. Now, although the Mark IV had a high-velocity 75mm gun, which outperformed the Sherman gun, the Sherman had better armour and a faster-turning turret function, which just about balanced it out. Hmm. At normal Normandy ranges, I, I, I think it's fair to say both types, Mark IV and Sherman, could knock each other out. Uh, other advantages the Sherman had was uh, it used less fuel. They, I, we want to make it clear the Sherman is not useless. Use less fuel than the uh, German tank. Certainly more reliable. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, far easier to maintain and repair, repair than the German Panther or Tiger. And there's uh, another thing in my mind that's better about the Sherman. What would that, that be, Gary? Well, I presume you're referring to the sheer weight of numbers. Yeah. They were cheap and quick to produce. And uh, the Americans, I think it's Canadians, the British, even, churning out of the factories in their thousands. So uh, if one's knocked out, quickly replaced. Now, this was not the case with the German Panthers and Tigers. They were manufactured in far more limited numbers and were therefore a precious resource. In the final analysis, the Sherman was available en masse, and although flawed, it was a useful weapon of war. And, Pete, what else was there? Precisely. Um, now, the loss, uh, so many of the, well, people that we've been talking about in this, this podcast, the loss of so many men, tank crews, killed in Shermans, it, it is it is unbearably painful for those that, that knew them. But there is another side of it, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, replacements were being uh, churned out, for want of a better word, of the training establishments. Now, let's look at the crew roles. Uh, this is, uh, because this is something we've not done. Uh, who comes to mind first when you're talking about Sherman crews? Who do you see? Well, the commander. And uh, he was the most vulnerable member of the crew. Most tank commanders had their hatch open and their head and shoulders protruding out. Hey, is this just bravado? What are they doing? Why do they do that? No, it's it's necessity if they weren't to be surprised. And this is what Major Douglas Hutchison of HQ Troop A Squadron says. Head out. I think we all found that there might be slightly more risk and occasionally people would be killed by having their heads out. But I think the danger of what was that was overweighed by the fact that if you keep inside and look through the periscopes, your vision was that much more limited. You couldn't really see what was going on. So you're more likely to be ambushed and killed. So it's it's a swings and roundabouts thing, isn't it? Now, the tank commanders, they're incredibly busy, uh, especially if you're a, like a Hutchison was, a, a, a troop or squadron commander. Uh, why is that? What do, what do they have to do that's different? Well, they had to tactically manoeuvre all the tanks in their for formation via the wireless. Now, when it came to action, many found that all their frenetic activity through a very welcome blanket over any underlying fears that they might have harboured. And once more, you're going to tell us what 2nd Lieutenant Charlie Workman of One Troop says. In action, one never had, had any fear. A tank commander was too busy. You were watching your map, looking at your troop, talking to your own tank, giving your driver instructions. Go slow, turn left, stop. You were telling your gunner, traverse left, traverse right, pick up the target. The wireless operator would be giving you instructions. You were so busy. But the worst of it was when you came out and you were looking around to see who was still there. Then you would be told, old oh, so-and-so's gone. And that was the worst bit. Yeah. yeah can you imagine that? Now, as they gained experience, they learnt how to survive on a crowded, complex battlefield. Now, it's obvious that speed was important if they suddenly sighted a German panzer or anti-tank gun, because if they didn't fire first and accurately, 
then that might be the last thing they ever did. It was all about teamwork between the tank commander, the gunner and his loader. And this is what Lance Corporal Roy Valance of 4 Troop A Squadron says about how they worked together. Depending on how proficient the commander and gunner were, they would be lined up on target quickly. The more they did it, the quicker it was done. One could get as many as three or four HE shells, that's high explosive shells, in the air at the same time, if you were really on the ball. It was a very easy gun to fire, and very accurate, extremely good with HE, but its penetration with AP, armour piercing, was abysmal, just not powerful enough. Now generally, the good tank commander had learnt not to take chances and also to react quickly to any threat. There was no benefit in hanging around. It was important to try and confuse their enemies. And Lance Corporal Roy Valance goes on. Whenever I was fired at, I got moving straight away. That was my philosophy, rightly or wrongly. And chuck out smoke until you could find some cover. Get behind a hedge or something. It may not sound very warlike, but the first thing in my mind was preservation. Traverse your turret round and keep your gunner onto the target. Try to get him to hit it or put it put it off its aim, the, the German tank or German's uh, uh, anti-tank gun. You would see a gun firing, probably miles away. You would fire at it. It stops firing. That's it. You don't actually go and look at it. You might see something through your binoculars, but you didn't hang around much, or at least I didn't, if you were being fired at. <laughs> well, sensible, I Sensible guy. Well, he was still alive until he died, but he died many, many years after the war. And there were other problems. Uh, one such problem was how to deal with the Panzerfaust. What were they, Gary? Remind me of what a Panzerfaust is. Well, in essence, it's, it's uh, a, a German equivalent of like a bazooka, Pete, um, which were almost invisible from the perspective of a tank. In the Bocage country, they could hide almost anywhere and far from point-blank range. And Charlie Workman says, uh, Panzerfaust were highly mobile. It was a hand-held rocket. A chap with a Panzerfaust could come creeping up a hedgerow. It was an anti-tank weapon that could blow your sprockets off. Ow. Nothing worse than having your sprockets blown off, Gary. <laughs> the tracks. Oh. Blow the sprockets off the tracks. Yes, Pete. You should probably read ahead a little bit. Immobilise the tank, or more importantly, get at the commander. <laughs> that's that's him, Valance, at this time. In the Bacage country, as we were advancing, if you saw a wood or a house, you just poured HE shells into it and brassed it off with machine guns. Yeah, I'll just correct you. This is actually Lieutenant Charlie Workman, not Valance, because you refer to Valance. Just a mistake, Pete. I like making Because I know how you like to have them. I do like mistakes. <laughs> now, it had been noticed that when they tried to run through a dense hedge on an earth bank, the Sherman would rear up, thereby exposing its vulnerable, almost unarmoured belly to any lurking Panzerfaust opera. I'm just thinking about that. Yeah, what a target that would present. Now, a simple solution had been devised by an American serviceman, one Sergeant Cullin, a plough-like metal projection welded to the front, which prevented the Sherman from climbing up and instead just pushed right through the hedge and earth bank together. A Panzerfaust could still hit them, but at least it would be on the front armour, which, as we've said, is, is the, the thickest armour, the heaviest armour. 
Now, by this time, most of the officer and NCO tank commanders that we're talking about at the moment, they'd gained the respect of their men. Uh, some had uh, their eccentricities, quite a lot of them did, but their abilities in action were, were appreciated by most. Uh, and a good example is, is Sir John Gilmore, who we mentioned earlier. Uh, he's not a typical soldier, is he? And he's clearly emanating from the Scottish landed gentry, like David Barron, our old friend, Colonel David Barron. Aye. Aye. Uh, he's, um, it, his men knew he was different, <laughs> but he also had qualities that earned their, uh, their admiration. And whatever leadership was, and it's many things to many men, he, he certainly had it. And you're going to be Trooper James Donovan of B Squadron, that's his squadron. Sir John Gilmore was a brilliant man. He was calm. He wasn't a bullshitter. He was a down-to-earth man, man you could trust. You think to yourself, well, I could follow him. We always used to say, he's the most slabbocky soldier we've ever met. Untidy, he didn't have the courage of a military man. When we wore our berets slanted over nicely, you had your gaiters and trousers tucked over nicely in line. He never really looked smart. His hat used to be on, but not pulled down sharply and creased like we used to have it but he was well-respected. So he looked like a bag of shit tied yeah, I just think That's exactly what I thought. <laughs> well, it's the expression from your time, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. A bag of shit tied up. You heard it many times, I expect, Gary. I've said it many times. No, Gary, you heard it. <laughs> now, a more junior figure was William Steele Brownlee. Ah, Steele Brownlee. One, one of our heroes of the podcast. Now, his reputation had spread beyond his tank crew throughout the troop and squadron until, in the end, his thrusting approach was recognised and admired across the whole regiment. Now, he, he wasn't always that easy to get on with by report. We never interviewed him, he, but we had his memoirs. Uh, he was possessed of extremely strong opinions. He was not afraid to express, a bit like you, Gary Niss. Uh, uh, he knew, uh, though, what was needed in the presence of the enemy. And he had the skills, that the, the skill set to deliver time and time again. Now, Roy Valance, uh, I'm, I'm going to go back to being him. And this time I'll uh, remember who I am, I hope. Uh, he'd been posted as a tank commander to steal Brownie's troop. And he'd, uh, they'd had the odd spot of bother. And in fact, he'd been putting on a charge in England for uh, telling him to fuck off, basically. Uh, <laughs> we apologise for that language, but that was used by somebody long ago. So I'm going to be uh, Roy Valance, and this is what he says about Steel Browning. Steel Browning was just a young boy, really. I was 23. I think he was 21 or 22. Very boyish in his manner. Very much so. He was completely fearless. Mad as a March hare. At the start, we weren't the best of friends. We had crossed swords in the past, and I didn't do anything to improve it. When he put some water out on to have a shave, he means to boil up for a shave, and when he was hot, I took it and washed our mess tins in it. <laughs> Relationships further deteriorated. I had great admiration for him as a troop leader. He knew what he was doing. He was competent and... He was lucky. That is a very good combination. I hoped that I knew what I was doing. We, we had confidence in each other and the rest of the troop. From here on, we became the best of friends. Just like us, Gary. You wouldn't think there was room in a tank for swords. <laughs> now that's how I praise from a man who was not easily impressed. Valance himself, it was carving out a reputation as a brilliant tank commander who did not kowtow 
two officers. No, and you're going to be Trooper John Buchanan, who's a four troop A squad. They're all they're all they're all together into uh, a uh, four troop. Valance was one of the best. He was cool, calm, and collected. He knew what he was doing. The crew said that he was a great boy to work for. He showed his true worth in battle. He used to stand up for them. If I take my tank across that open ground, I'm going to lose it. There's going to be tanks there. You've got to put smoke down or make sure I'm getting support. He wasn't backwards in telling the officers what to do. A great chap. Now, so that's the... Uh, we had a bit of a look there at the commanders and some of the characters. Let's now look at who's next. Well, I think we do the, the gunner and the wireless operator loader. Uh, that's two two men. Uh, the wireless operator loader is one and the gunner is the other. Um Difficult jobs, you think? Yeah, they've got highly skilled trades to master. If the gunner missed a target was too slow, that could be curtains for the whole crew. Of course it could. And I suppose uh, the the loader, he'd have to work in complete harmony with the uh, gunner, I presume, uh, if they're going to get the fastest possible rate of fire. Uh, there's something else he has to do as well. What else? Well, he's got to get the right shell fused and loaded, depending on the nature of the target. Now, here again, experience could give them an edge in a sudden encounter in the bocage. Yeah. Now, John Buchanan, uh, Trooper John Buchanan, was Steel Brownlee's gunner in his Sherman, and he made sure he was always ready to fire almost instantaneously. Uh, we've got we mentioned before, but let's just emphasise it because I know some some people are. Think we don't know this. Uh, one of the big Sherman assets is the lightning speed relative to other German tanks that the tur the turret could be traversed. It took just ten seconds to make a complete revolution. That means you can you see a target, you can get round to it before they can get round to you. It is a big advantage, isn't it? And you're it, especially in combat, obvious obvs, totes obs. Uh, and you're going to be Trooper John Buchanan of Four Troop. We always carried a shell up the breach in action. It was a high explosive shell, never an armoured piercing. The drill was the officer would designate a target and he would say, high explosive, delay. Well, there was a shell up the breach, so we got rid of that first. If it was HE shell in the breach and he wanted an AP, well, it was as quicker to fire it than to unload it. So he just fired it at the target and then put an AP in right away. They were very fast loading. Then the next shell was ready. A good wireless operator had it ready in his hand to shove up the breach. The breach would automatically open. The shell would come out and clattered on the floor. So all he had to do then was throw in the next shell. You could bash off a few shells inside a minute, two or three a minute. The officer would put me onto the target. Target there, White House in the distance, left. That's how we were taught, to pick something out which you could put your gun on. Then you searched through your telescope and found which target he was after. Then he would give you the range. He could see it better from where he was. You would alter your range to that and get on the targets. Then he'd say, ready to fire? Fire! Now, so you can see that, uh, that, 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 that they know what they're doing. But there's also a little wrinkle in gunnery technique that they learn through experience. And it could be a life or death difference in a tank duel. And again, your trooper, John Buchanan. The high explosive shell had a wee screw on it, Aye. which you turned to delay. That was the loader's job. You'd say, on delay. And he would turn the screw on to delay. That gave you one second. The shell would land and it would wait and then blow up. We found that by firing the shell in front of your target on delay, it would skid off the ground, bounce, go up into the air, and it blows up. So you had an air burst. And that, we found, was very effective. 
It would certainly knock the commander out if you got an airburst above his head. And now we're just going to take a short break. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Success in action meant a combination of good basic skills and drills, but also, to some extent, luck. Just which way your opponent happened to be looking in the vital seconds, that defined the incident. Now, we're gonna, you're going to be John Buchanan again, because he, he remembers how he got his second, it was the second uh, German tank he got. So tell us how, how he got that, young John Buchanan. The Germans had counterattacked us, and the infantry were falling back. They were pointing, but I couldn't see anything. A Mark IV tank came out of the sunken lane to turn into the field I was sitting in. It got sort of jammed. The commander couldn't see me. I could see him. He got his leg over the turret to, to get out to try and guide his driver. And then he saw me. His leg was hanging over the top of the tank, and I can still see the expression on his face today. Will I jump or go back into the tank? Before he could make up his mind, I had pressed the trigger. An explosive shell had gone. It hit just below where his foot was. When the smoke cleared, he had gone. The tank was there, but he disappeared. The crew had bailed out. Yeah, that's quite a, a, um, a telling story, I think. Uh, now, is, that, is that, do they just control the main armour, the 75mm, or is there anything else the gunner has to do? No, they've got the coaxial browning machine gun in the turret. So that goes round with the turret. Now, this was often used in a precautionary fashion 
fired into hedges alongside the narrow Bacaj country roads, that sort of thing. That's what uh, they called brassing up, wasn't it? We, you mentioned that earlier. But what, did they ever get to fire at any... I mean, was that it? Just precautionary, or did they ever catch anybody in no, the open? No, if they could catch somebody in the open, they could wreak havoc. And this is what Trooper Terry Boyne of 4 Troop A Squadron says. There was a German infantry attack. They came forward towards us. We had warning that they were coming. Up to then, we hadn't seen a lot of them. We were formed up in front of the hedge, fairly well camouflaged. They came charging down and they got raked. This is where we burnt out the machine gun barrel firing. They came down so far and then when we started opening fire, they turned round and started running. I had to change the barrel. That was the .30 Browning. You'd have a belt of ammo that was in a little ammunition box. That would be threaded through, then the gun would be cocked and then you could fire that from your control. The loader would put in a, the new belt when required. Every time the belt ran out, he'd stick a new one in. That moved with the turret. They worked in unison, you see. If you aimed one, you aimed the pair. Unlike some, the browning always left the next fresh round in the barrel. If you used it a lot, put a few belts through, the barrels got very hot, so the round in there would get hotter and hotter, and they would probably go, used to fire on their own. For the co-driver, that was a bit dodgy because he used to hang on to that to pull himself out. And to look down a barrel of a browning with that that's got a hot round in it wouldn't be particularly funny. The way to overcome that was to pull the belt back. If you fired a lot of ammo through quickly, it used to take all the rifling out. Then the shots would be all over the place. You lost all accuracy. When you saw the tracers flying all over the shop, you knew you were well out. You could change the barrel from the inside quite easily. You carried replacements as part of your normal spares. You took the breech out and there was a locking device. Once you undid that, you could slide the barrel back out from its outer covering. Put another one in. That was it. It had a sleeve over the outside full of holes for cooling. Lock it and put the breech back in. It didn't take long. So you didn't have to get out of the tank. That's the great advantage of that. Probably not a good idea if there's German infantry about. That's that's very clever. Um, now, uh, the, 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 there's one thing that uh, I remember lots of people talking about. That's another responsibility the gunner has, uh, particularly, and you wouldn't necessarily think of this, to the driver and the co-driver. Now, Gary, think of the uh, configuration of a Sherman. What do you think that is? Well, it's, it's if you've got to bail out. If the gun turret was in the wrong position, blocking the driver compartment hatches, then the driver and co-driver, they'd have to escape through the floor hatch. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, if there was sufficient ground clearance, it's great, but it's not really like being soft ground conditions, is so it? So they'd be ne- they're just trapped. Yeah. And of course, remember, in term, you know, if the tank's on fire, you only have seconds. Hmm. Mm. Well, should we talk about the drivers? Uh, what do you think of the drivers? Another skilled member of the Sherman crew, the man that put the tank where the commander wanted it to go. Mm. Uh, but um, there's uh, there's a problem for the driver. He's got two options. Uh, one is he can have his head out of the, uh, the, the the hatch, and he can see then pretty well. What's the other option? Well, inside, but with extremely limited visibility. Through the periscopes and things, uh, well, or the, the slits. Um, and uh, I'm going to be Trooper Jack Rex, who was headquarters squadron, I believe. And he says this, if you had your seat and lid open, you could see out then. But if you had the seat down and the lid shut, you couldn't see much at all through a little bit of a slit. The tank commander told you what to do. You didn't drive just where you wanted in action. You were only doing what he said. Driver, right! 
He always repeated himself or driver left or driver reverse. He always said driver first, then you'd listen. If he wanted it fast, he would say driver reverse fast. <laughs> now the driver also had to bear in mind the capabilities of his tank. There was little use in taking up a good hold down position if, uh, if they were then unable to quickly withdraw in an emergency. And this is what Trooper Ron Forbes of 4 Troop B Squadron says. A commander had to make a quick assessment of the terrain he was in and look for a safe spot where he could probably get a good field of fire and still have most of the tank protected. A hedge, a sunken lane, something like that, but you had to make sure you were able to withdraw. That was one of the important things. Once you found a place you had to look to escape if you were fired on by something like a he uh, an 88mm, something heavy like an 88mm, you wanted to get out quickly. For instance, across the sunken lane, you might go hold down and get bogged in, stuck, and that was a bad thing. Well, yeah. Actually, I've got that in my mind. Yeah, that that is perfectly possible, isn't it? Yeah, you get jammed in. You can slew round and get in. When you come to get out, you've got another bank behind you, and it just can't, you just get jammed, yeah. Um, now, one thing I like this next quote, uh, I'm going to say my Welsh accent, I think. Uh, uh, the driver is, is quite a bit in front. He's sort of going blind into who knows what, what's in front of him. And they found it a very tense business, um, especially going in the Bacars along those sunken roads. Can you just picture that? Ditches What's around the next corner? What's around the next corner? What could he be? And this is uh, Trooper Len Harkins. Uh, he's uh, a Welsh lad from A Squadron. It's a funny thing, boy, when you're leading tank. It's a lot more frightening. You could have ten times more German soldiers in front of you. So long as you could see somebody alongside you, it wasn't so bad, boy. Do you know, when you're a driver in the front compartment, you were that as... You were that much in front of the turret crew. This is a matter of feet at most inches, more like, but never mind. When you went into action, you would swear you were 20 yards in front of the rest of them. So you could, they've just got this perception that they're, they're going first. Do, do, do you understand what I mean? I would at this stage like to apologise to the entire Welsh nation. Oh, that, that was really, really great. Thanks, Pete. Yeah. Now, the co-driver was... Welsh with Pete and Garrett. <laughs> the co-driver was basically a spare crewman, often charged with brewing up the tea... Hang on, this doesn't sound quite as important. <laughs> ...taking over occasional stints as the driver... That's... They get tired, that's important. ...and using the whole browning when necessary in action. Now, that's the another machine gun. Uh, that, that and Yeah, that's not in the turret, yep. Yeah. Now, James Donovan was very dissatisfied with his co-driver and he considered him worse than useless. Well, and this is what Trooper James Donovan of B Squadron says about his co-driver. The chap who became my co-driver, I found out <laughs> when we went into action, he always had bottles of wine from the various farmhouses. Quite often, he'd be three parts drunk. His attitude was, I'm not afraid to die. <laughs> I used to say to him, well, I don't care what you're not afraid to do, but I don't want to die. When I said to him, when we were moving from one sector to another, you drive and I'll, t I'll have a break in the co-driver's seat, he said, there's no point in me doing that, mate, <laughs> because I can't drive. <laughs> that was my first indication he couldn't drive, which wasn't very helpful to me. 
Now that's that. I think this is a, a, a calamity, and I shouldn't have picked this quote for the co-driver because that's not fair. Most of the co-drivers could drive, and I apologise to any of the remaining co-drivers of these five people. A calamity, a calamity. Now, when all is said and done, the tank crews usually got on well together. The officers had muck in as if as they were living cheek by jowl, and it was mutually beneficial to relax many of the usual formalities, but. Officers were still officers. And this is Second Lieutenant Charlie Workman once more of one troop. I knew they called me Charlie. They would say, Ah, oh, God, there's old Charlie at it again, but never to my face. I was always, Sir. There was still an inbuilt respect for position in those days and a very healthy respect for each other. I didn't smoke. Or a lot of waiting, the chaps would all be smoking. I would take these boiled sweets and we'd crack silly jokes with each other. I think it's a British habit. It's one of the things the army got absolutely right. The tank crew. You relied on them. We used to have great argument about, arguments about who is the most important member of this crew. <laughs> you had your driver, your front gunner, your wireless operator, your gunner and your tank commander. The purpose is, <laughs> uh, uh, right, so they'd say, the purpose is to bring the tank come out, tank somewhere where it can fire the gun. Therefore, I, the driver, am the most important. The wireless operator would say, nonsense, I'm the guy <clears throat> that tells you where you should take your gun. And the gunner would say, well, that's a load of bulls, because I'm the guy who fires the gun. I would say, well, I'm the chap that ensures all of you get there. It was quite a healthy debate, quite good fun. There was great expertise based, it was based on a mutual respect and the fact that we relied on each other. It worked very well. And I think a lot of people have said that tank crews did work well. Um, yeah, every crew member knew that he was in a team and that the rest would look after him. Any outsider's attempts to undermine this bond were doomed to failure as Workman recalled in a telling anecdote. And once more, you're going to be Second Lieutenant Charlie Workman. We had a brigadier, not, not Roscoe Harvey. That's uh, uh, He was a great chap, uh, but another one, who turned up and he said, well, a man is wounded in your tank. Yeah, put him out. Yeah, we'll leave him and put some sort of identification for him. And you'll press on and leave him to the ambulance. I got my troop and I said, this is what the brigadier has said. I want to make it clear to you, nobody in my troop will ever be put out when he's wounded. You will be kept in the tank until an ambulance can take care of you. I discovered that every other troop leader had done the same thing. And that's that's part of the team ethos, isn't it? A togetherness, would you? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it was togetherness of the tank crews, all mucking in, sharing routine tasks and dangers whilst living in close contact. It, it was a crucial factor in maintaining morale in the second Fife and Fourfile Yeomanry Aye. and other tank units which were available and were far easier to say. Yes, sadly. Sherwood Rangers. Look, look how easy that is to say. Sherwood Rangers. Any problems with that, Gary? No. You could see why some noted brilliant historians have gone for that, can't you? You can. However, that very intimate, moving on swiftly, that very intimacy brought with it some unpleasant aspects. Are you talking about farting? Well, there's, that's the least of it, I think. For the crew of five, the interior of a Sherman was a cramped, claustrophobic and unpleasant environment. Farting! And uh, Trooper John Buchanan of 4 Troop A Squadron says, When the tank was on the move, it was a noisy place. Noisy, smelly and oily smell. 
And when the guns were firing, especially machine guns, it got very choked up with the smoke and fumes off the ammunition. You had to try and keep your turret open if it was at all possible. Noisy, smelly and oily smell. In the summertime, it was very, very hot with the heat of the engines coming through the tank. It was damn hot. Now, the, 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 you've got to picture your tank crew, the five of you. You, you know what's going to happen if the Shermans hit. And they're often bloody nervous. And, uh, Understandably this is, so. I think so. And this is Trooper Gordon Fiddler. Uh, we're in touch with uh, one of his relatives, Fall Troop A Squadron. Well, let's say every time a panther or a tiger was mentioned, we began to use toilet paper. <laughs> I mean that, literally. <laughs> we were scared stiff. But I will also say that every tank that was seen was a panther or a tiger. Everybody used these words. It was a tiger that was facing me, and half the time it wasn't. There was a lot of Mark IVs about as well, and a lot of self-propelled guns as well. That's a, is it Stugs that we mentioned earlier? It was ingrained, I think, in the mind. Yeah, yeah. But they're locked up in the Sherman. Now here, perhaps, we, we're edging towards the toilet parts of life, aren't we? We are, and uh, you've got to manage that as best you could and this is what second lieutenant charlie workman of one troop says if it was if it was a p you you did it in an empty shell case if you had anything more serious <laughs> you had to nip out and just squat down with somebody watching that nobody took a pot shot at you <laughs> those first few days nobody went for a crap at all they were so tied up wow. mm, hardly surprising <laughs> no now toilet hume is never far from the mind of the british soldier or us and James Donovan could not help be amused, but be amused when he saw a man racing to complete a um, mission in extremis. Was he going for a crap? I think you'll find he was. And this is what Trooper James Donovan of B Squadron says. The driver of the tank in front of us, when we'd been stationary for a long time, he got out to go to the toilet. We were sitting behind him, just looking through the periscope. He came out, dashed round the back of the tank, dropped his trousers, and before he'd finished doing nature's call, the Nebelwerfers started coming over, the moaning minis. There was a panic then to see the man trying to pull his trousers up and scramble back in the tank. <laughs> just the lack of sympathy. Hey, look, he's in real trouble. <laughs> he's all down his leg. <laughs> now, sometimes their need was great, and John Buchanan remembered an incident which could have had really tragic consequences. And he says this, I was desperate for the toilet, Shine Grant was desperate too. The idea is to take your wee spade, go somewhere quiet and dig a hole. He said, I'm going down beside these trees. I said, I'm going in the middle of that field. There wasn't much grass on it and there was a big thick tree trunk lying there. I said, I'll get behind that tree trunk. I could see the odd German moving around, but not realising that they could see me moving around. I go behind this tree and started... I couldn't dig a hole because the ground was hard and flinty. All of a sudden, you could hear in the distance the moan of the mortars coming, the moaning minis. Oh, God, I went down, I hugged this tree. The shells all landed round about me. A shell landed about eight to ten feet away. But a mortar shell, because the ground is hard, it blows up and the shrapnel went over my head. If it had been soft, I wouldn't have been here. When the barrage finished, I grabbed my shovel and haired it back to the tank. Yeah. Now, by this time, uh, the, uh, the, uh, we can never resist a couple of latrine stories, can we? But by this time, um, oh, it's, it's evident to, to everybody, 
As Normandy goes on, the tanks and infantry have to work together. And it's not that tanks need the infantry. They both need each other, don't they? It's, uh, uh, and do you think there was a building up a mutual respect? Yeah, both appreciate the inherent risks their opposite numbers were taking on a daily basis. Yeah, uh, and, and you're going to be Trooper, again, one of our favourites, Trooper John Buchanan, 4 Troop Ace Goodwin. When you got into trouble, if you can't get your own infantry up to surround the danger area, you asked the local infantryman to do something. At the back of the tank was a telephone which they could lift and speak to the commander up at the top. They would say, look, there's so-and-so over there, some machine guns over there. I admired them greatly. I thought they had the roughest, toughest time because they were in the open and minefields. You put your foot down and next thing you've blown yourself up. I thought they were great. They say, I wouldn't like to be in a tank, man. Imagine being in one of them. Because they came across these tanks that had been brewed up, being curious, they would look in and, oh, God, they thought we had a tough job. They were okay because they could dig a hole and get into it. We respected each other. Yeah, and a common theme, uh, and uh, funny, I'm just doing some work on the 16th DLI in Italy, and uh, they don't go anywhere near tanks if they can help. Why is that? Because tanks attract artillery fire. DLI, Doncaster Light Infantry. Not t- very close to Doncaster, let's just leave them there. Donkey wallopers, no, not either <laughs> of those things. Uh, Durham Light Infantry, fine by your men. That, but the infantry did not like being close because of the shell fire it's, it, and mortar fire. Uh, shells had crashed around the tanks. Well, they seemed to attract them, didn't yeah. they? But the, but the foot soldier really, really didn't want to be in a tank. Why is that, Gary? Well, they, they had a fear of being enclosed and, and you know, this vulnerability to uh, brewing up and being burnt alive inside the tank. And that could be very real. And, and you've just mentioned, that other bloke mentioned uh, that, that they'd looked inside tanks and they'd seen the, the scrapey body bits. And, Buchanan, uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, you're now going to be tro- tro- one of our favourites, Trooper Terry Boyne, 4 Troop Ace Gunner. If we picked up wounded infantry, as bad as they were, and some were very bad, you'd say, get them in the turret. With the strength that they had left, they'd fight it all the way. They would never get in the turret. As bad as they were, they would sooner lay out on the engine covers at the back, being held on by their mates. There was no way they would get in. They just wouldn't. And that's a, a very interesting point. And it just shows you it, it's different for everybody. I mean, the, the artillery have their problems because the artillery are a big, big target for German artillery. Everybody's got problems. War is not easy for anybody, is it? Now, this is brought to a point by the fact that there's a lot of casualties within uh, Second Fife and Fourth Fife during the Normandy campaign. Uh, what does that mean the officers have to do, Gary? Well, they kept busy uh, writing letters to the bereaved families in their troop. Charlie Workman... He was happy to perjure himself rather than add even more pain to their grief. So no one died screaming after hours of unbearable agony, suffering from horrendous burns. Everyone died cleanly in his letters. And this is an example of 2nd Lieutenant Charlie Workman, one troop. It was an absolute tradition that you wrote to the parents or the wife of any of your crew who'd been killed. Mostly it was parents. We were a fairly young lot. I wrote to this young chap's parents, it was almost a standard thing. You knew they were going to get the official notification. You just said, I'm awfully sorry. I can assure you he died bravely and the end came quickly. Whether he died bravely and quickly or not. 
And I think that's just common humanity. You just tell. And I used to, I, I remember when I used to read, I used to think it's amazing how everybody gets shot through the heart and dies instantaneously and felt no pain. When you've also got the accounts from the lads telling you that, well, Workman himself, do you remember that story about the, the uh, sack next to him that was screaming? Um, it's a small kindness to the family and uh, it's not lying it's uh, it's a kindness now overall it's an extremely hard life for the tank tank crews they're under an unremitting stress that never seemed to dissipate so many of their comrades had been killed or wounded that it was difficult to maintain a positive mental outlook and this is what trooper ron forbes of four troop b squadron says I had a sort of pessimistic feeling. I always thought the worst was going to happen. Funnily enough, you sort of mentally prepare yourself for it. And there's another side to it. You always feel that it can't happen to me. It won't happen to me. There's always the worry that you won't be able to cope if something really did happen that required you to be steady in your thinking. Would you go to pieces? Most of us had a worry like that. How are you going to cope? Am I going to crack up when the shots come flying at you? Your pride, you wouldn't like it to let your mates down. That was a feeling all the crew had. None of them would want to let you down in a tight spot. So it's sort of everyone's linked together. Everybody's scared, but you're not letting yourself down. You're not letting your comrades down. Sticking it out, would you call it? Just just enduring? Yeah, and and we're going to finish with just a, a... one sad little quote, uh, and this again is from Second Lieutenant Charlie Workman. Yeah, for me, it was just one of those quotes that just sort of sum up an old man thinking back, and 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 how sometimes he gets a little echo of it from nothing, from nowhere. He says this: When one started up the tank, it's got these big fans in the Sherman to pull out the gun fumes. When you get six yard tanks all starting up, there was the smell of the fumes and the smell from the wet grass. That is sometimes. That, that sometimes I still get today. There you go, still. Um, and uh, and uh, I, I know Steel Brownie said something, we'll be finishing the whole series with that, uh, a very similar quote about he, he just thought he, he could think back to being in Normandy. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this book. Uh, oh, sorry, book. Uh, well, I didn't mean to mention book. <laughs> hope you is there a book? <laughs> yes. Oh, I meant to say podcast, not book. What is the book called, Gary? Ah. Uh. Burning steel. Yeah. If you want to know more about the second five and four fire Yeomanry, uh, then that book deals with their story during the whole of the Second World War. Uh, I'm very proud of it, mainly because I feel it tells the story of an amazing group of men who uh, deserve to be remembered. In uh, They're just fabulous. Absolutely. Or in case you just need a sort of lime green and white book in your bookcase. Yeah. Well, because it looks striking on there. I notice it yours is. completely unused. <laughs> Yes, like a lot of your books. (laughs) Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to support us, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or... Visit www.blahblahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?